It's so good to be back. I missed you guys the last couple weeks. Uh, I have a bit of a personal report from T4G, Together for the Gospel. Nissen, Chris, Dave Furman, and I went to North America, and we took part in the largest pastors' conference in North America. About 8,000 pastors gathered together. Many people who visited my time at the conference in great thanksgiving for you. I wanted you to know many, many pastors have great struggles in their congregations. A lot of pain, some conflict, difficulties all over the place. And it was a great reminder for me as I heard and shared with these men about what a wonderful congregation you are and how, how much you are loved by the elders. I wanted you to know that. It is a privilege and a joy to walk with Christ alongside you. Much of the conversations at T4G were about spiritual health of the church. The talks were good, biblical, meaningful. I noticed how careful the speakers were with biblical truth concerning spiritual health. And that's a good thing because many people use the uh, offers of spiritual health actually to gain for themselves. It can be a great profit motive. It's downright dangerous in that way. And it comes to us in so many ways, programs or conferences to attend, types of prayers to be offered, books to read, ways to raise your kids, how to have a happy marriage, all with guarantees to work. Now, we should be both unsurprised and suspicious about these things. Unsurprised because, remember, much of the New Testament was written by Paul to confront those peddlers of the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, that he was not a peddler of the gospel, unlike so many, he said. Even when the Bible, therefore, was being written, there were those who would use spiritual health for personal benefit. So we too should be suspicious because of the many offers that come to us from spiritual peddlers today. I mean, how many popular programs and events seem so bankrupt just a couple years later? That's the wisdom that time brings to us, I think, as we look at programs that are offered to us. So in the midst of all that, how would you respond if I came to you today telling you that I, I have today, in today's sermon, the key for spiritual health? And I guarantee it. Well, I I hope you'd be unsurprised, just like I told you. I also told you to be a bit suspicious. And you should be. Remember, just because it comes from the pulpit doesn't mean you can't check it with Scripture. Actually, our call to you as a congregation is to be so drenched in the Word of God that you're constantly thinking through what it means to evaluate the speaker based on Scripture, our highest evaluation. Well, I think the key for personal and spiritual health and well-being is contained in our verses today. Let's read them. Luke 18, 9 through 17. You can follow along in your bulletin or on the overhead. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So basically, in this short passage, just eight verses, Luke tells us for whom the parable is for in verse 9. Jesus then tells the parable about two men in verses 10 through 13. And Jesus gives a behind-the-scenes view, how God views the thing that's happened with these two men in verse 14. And then... There's this story about children that I think is tightly connected to this parable in verses 15 through 17. That's the outline of the sermon today. A target audience, number one. Number two, a contrast of two men. Number three, heaven's view. And number four, the children. Let's talk about verse nine, number one, the target audience. Now, unlike other gospel writers, Luke explains the parable before the parable is told. Usually in other Gospels, you hear the explanation afterwards. But here he tells us that this parable is for those who trust in themselves. They trust their righteousness. And consequently, they treat others with contempt. Now, I think, I think we know what it means to trust ourselves, right? We know what it means to put our faith in ourselves. And I think what it means when others are treated with contempt. That is to look down on other people. But what is righteousness? What is it to be righteous? If you were were on the street and someone came up to you and said, what is righteousness? What would you say? Would you have an answer? It's kind of a big theological word. I'm not particularly fond of big theological words, but when Jesus uses theological words, we better know what they mean. When Jesus says righteous, he means right standing before God. That our slate has been wiped clear before God. Jesus is telling this parable to people who believe they have right standing before God based on themselves. They believe they have all the righteousness that they need internally before God. By definition, they are self-righteous. And if you believe that, if you believe that your righteousness is enough before God, that one day when you stand before God and that who you are before him is enough, then you're not alone. Most people in the world, most people think they have no need for any external righteousness to be applied to their account, that they're on their own. Furthermore, I think most people believe that God grades on the curve 
you know, bell curve. So that you, you compare yourself to the rest of the world. And so, you know how the bell curve is. If you're on the right side of the bell curve, you're happy for those folks that are on the left side, right? And back down at the tail end of that bell curve, you know, where the axe murderers are, those people down there, as long as you have those axe murderers, you're okay. That's, I think that's how most people think about righteousness. That it's based on their own good works and efforts. And often, if they're on the right side of that bell curve, looking back, they have contempt. Contempt for others. Self-righteousness and contempt go together, very naturally. There's just one problem with self-righteousness. God's standards are not about how we compare ourselves with other people. God's standards are how we compare with Him. How do we compare with the living God? That really changes the game, doesn't it? If we think about it, it's a a different standard altogether than what the rest of the world looks like. It's like we we regularly go around Safa Park in the morning. It's always beautifully mown, right? The grass is perfectly level if you look out at it. Now, I suspect if you went out and actually picked single blades of grass in Safa Park and you compared them, you'd find some that were seven millimeters tall and some that would be six millimeters tall and some might even be ten millimeters, right? I mean, you would find enormous variance in the, in the blades of grass. But if you look from above, if you look from a height down on Safa Park, what, what you see is a perfectly even lawn. Now, there's not that much difference in those things, though percentage-wise it may be really different. Well, the, the same is true for our righteousness, If you take lots of people out there, you pull them together, you might find this guy who's got 85% righteousness or this guy who's got 60% righteousness or this guy's got, you know, 28% righteousness, right? But from above, from the perspective of God, looking down, it's all pretty much the same. There's no internal righteousness that meets God's standards when we compare it with Him. Let's look at how that plays out in the parable, verses 10 through 13. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here's the two characters in the parable. They actually have some similarities. Both are men. Both have jobs with titles. Both are practicing their religion. They both approach God with a certain posture. They both pray. But the emphasis in the parable is about their differences. And these guys couldn't be more different. They represent the two ends of the social and religious scale. One is the lowest of the low, and the other, the most respected and honored person of the day. So in verse 11, we read that the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, it's it's difficult for us to understand the position of the Pharisee in their day. Uh, They were really a combination of many types 
of people that we would have in our world today. You, you know how, you know the respect that people give to celebrities? You know, if, have you been around a celebrity? You know, celebrities wander through Dubai all the time. Leanne was at the pharmacy over by Mercado Mall, and uh, Akshay Kumar wandered in, the, the, the Bollywood actor, right? And business ground to a halt. Uh, everyone wanted his autograph, including the pharmacist. The only person in the entire store who didn't know who it was was my wife, Leanne. She had no clue who Akshay was. And uh, she just wanted like, to get her purchase and get out of there. But the crowds, the respect, and kind of the way people formed, it's, it's a bit like that. And yet it's not just like that. It's not just like a celebrity. It's like a really, really wealthy person. You've been around a really, you know, a billion. And we're not talking mere millions. We're talking billions, right? So those of you who were at uh, Nissan and Joanna's wedding in January, know that Shetty was there, the, the, the wealthy man who's made all his money with hospitals and schools. Some of us go to his hospitals. Some of us go to his schools. I hope it's more the latter than the former. Um, and he's been fabulously wealthy. And there was great, great respect for him as people went up to his table to meet him. Uh, as, the, as the Matthews introduced us to him. You know that feeling when you get around really people? Or how about, how about uh, people like political leaders, people that have power politically? Have you ever been driving down Sheikh Zayed Road and seeing a G-Class Mercedes Benz, one of those square, boxy G-Class with a number one license plate? Have you seen that? Hey, if you're new to Dubai... Don't pass that car. Don't do that. Most of you know that. That's Sheikh Mohammed. And there's great reverence and respect about his power as a political leader, right? Or, or how about just, just this past week, I've been around all these religious celebrities. You know, Matt Chandler and John Piper and David Platt. I, was, I was, got to be with them in the speaker bubble, you know. And just to see the respect and the honor that's given to these great men who are great men of the faith. The Pharisees were like all four of those people put together. They're like the perfect storm of celebrity and power and wealth and religious fervor. That's who they were. They were deeply respected. People in Jesus' day would have seen the Pharisees as we would see all those four types combined. So it's no wonder that this particular Pharisee is thankful for who he is. Even starts out his prayer with thanksgiving. It goes kind of downhill, but he starts there. At least he starts there. Notice in his prayer, he does two things. He compares himself to others and he exalts himself before God. In his comparison, he tells God that he doesn't extort money from people. He's just, and he's not an adulterer. And I suspect, we don't know this from the text, but I I suspect that his eyes are not closed in prayer, and he's peeking out and looking at this tax collector who's standing off at a distance. You know how you do that when you pray? You peek. I see some of you peek when we pray. You're looking around. Okay, I do that too. I suspect he's peeking. And that's probably his view of the tax collector. That he, he sees him as someone who extorts money. Tax collectors didn't just collect bills. They extorted money from people. 
He says he's unjust. They gain money unjustly because they're in alliance with the Roman government. And he calls, he calls them, many people would call them an adulterer, not, not in, the, in the sexual sense. But Jesus said this is an adulterous generation. That is, they, they are people who are unfaithful to the, the things that they should be faithful to. In this case, the Jewish nation. They were betraying the Jewish nation by collecting taxes for the Romans. I suspect that's how he saw that. But just to make sure, he actually points out the tax collector. So he prays that he's not like that slimy, wicked, treacherous, conniving, money-grubbing, backstabbing tax collector who is praying off at a distance and so doing pours out his contempt. Now, no one, no one is confused about where the Pharisee's righteousness comes from. He's self-contained. He's religiously self-sufficient. He's self-righteous. In fact, there's no sense that God has any part to do with his piety at all. You almost get the idea that this Pharisee is going to enlist God in his cause. And if God grades on the curve... The Pharisee is doing great. But as we've said, God doesn't grade on the curve. God's not interested at all in how we compare with our neighbor. God is interested, as we've said, in how we stack up to himself. God's standard for the Pharisee, for the tax collector, for you and me, is himself. May I ask you, who, who, who is it you look down on? Who, who is it in your life that you tend to feel contempt about? Is it adulterers? Racists? Those who give you a hard time at work? Maybe it's the very rich. People who smell bad, smokers. Bad people, like your ex? (laughs) Maybe for you, it's stuffy, religious, self-righteous people, like the Pharisee. Now, we must be very careful here. It's very easy to start praying, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this Pharisee, right? Right? It's very easy to become like the Pharisee in our contempt for the Pharisee. The Pharisee's prayer is not done yet. In verse 12, he goes on to list the two things that he does do. He fasts twice a week, which is twice what would have been expected, and he gives a tenth of all he gets. His religion seems to be about food and money. I'd like to, I'd like to make a radical statement that should jump out at us from this this text. God hates pietism. He hates it. Pietism is that idea that you're righteous before God based on who you are on the outside, what you do on the outside. God hates that. He hates piety for piety's sake. It's not what we do on the outside. Paul says in Romans 3 that the righteous live by faith. 
our good works are as filthy rags before a holy God. The fact is you can never be good enough internally, inside of yourself for God. Most most religions believe in externals. Jesus begs to differ. I have a friend in Tunisia who is a university professor and he gathers his students, his Muslim students together and tells them stories, basically stories from the scripture. He tells a story much like this. Two men went to the mosque to pray, one a rich man and one a poor man. The rich man went through his libations and the right positions in his prayer as he did five times every day. But as he prayed, he began to have a fantasy about the young wife who lived next door to his home. But he finished his prayers and went back. The poor man couldn't even remember his libations or how to pray, but stood off in a distance, beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then my professor friend would ask the gathered students, who went home justified before God? And the answer was almost always, 99.9% always, the rich man. Because it's about what you do. It's about external life. Friends, I want to tell you, the Christian message is very, very different. The Christian message is our heart matters most to God. Don't let that way of thinking creep into your life. Slay those idols of comparison and contempt in your life. They are deadly. I'm going to tell you how to do that here in a little bit. It's, it's the key to spiritual life, but, but wait for it. I want to talk about some other things first. To Jesus, just remember, what matters is the condition of our hearts. And when we think about the conditions of our heart, we need to look at the tax collector. So let's look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now just just as it's hard to get a picture of how respected a Pharisee might be, so it is too difficult to understand how slimy a toad tax collector's were in Jesus' day. Now, I I think tax collectors, maybe it's easier for us to imagine this uh, because we have tax collectors still to this day. And they still don't particularly have great reputations. In fact, uh, they're they're really scary. I just, last week when I I was in the States, I got a letter from my state's uh, tax man saying that I owned back taxes for 2007 and 2008. And it was large sums of money. And um, I went to sleep. Not, I, I didn't go to sleep. I went to bed, unable to sleep. The, the office opened the next morning at 8 o'clock. I called them at 8.01. I got the tax man on the phone. I said, I didn't live in the state in 2007 and 2008. I, I lived in Dubai. I was nowhere near this state. And he said, oh, uh, okay, no problem. I said, that's it? <laughs> so yeah, that, that's all I needed to know. Just send me a, like your lease agreement or something. So, okay. Click. Surprisingly nice tax collector, right? Wow. 
Okay, so maybe they've evolved from Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they weren't like that. They had the full power of the government. And they, they did awful things to people. But his prayer, this tax collector's prayer is really amazing. It's really different. His posture is different. He doesn't compare himself with other people. He doesn't commend himself to God. Unlike the Pharisee, he has a confession. His confession is is that he's a sinner. Not only does he have a confession, he has a request. He prays for mercy. Oh God, be merciful to me. This is not just an ordinary request. This is a prayer of desperation from this man. Have you prayed prayers of desperation? Do you know what that prayer is like? When Leanne gave birth to our first son, Tristan, uh, things went really well. For me, I wasn't giving birth. <laughs> People ask how it went. And I said, it was great. Leanne prayed. They said, she prayed. Yeah. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. That's a prayer of desperation. Perhaps you know that prayer. But what about, what about a prayer of desperation when it's about our sin? When you've come to that place in life where you come before holy God and you realize you realize your sinful state you realize his holiness and what it means to stand before a holy God this tax collector needs help he knows he's a sinner whereas the Pharisee has no need for external righteousness The tax collector understands that without God's help, without God's mercy, there is no hope for him. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you come to that place where you recognize your sin and the way it has cut you off from the living God? Listen, you can't be a Christian unless you have dealt with your sin. Here's another radical statement. Your prayers don't do anything for you in and of themselves. Prayer is worthless in and of itself. Both of these men pray. All people have longings for prayer. Everyone prays. Hindus pray, Buddhists pray, Muslims pray, nominal Christians, but everybody prays. Prayer is worthless. Even, so, I'll go so far as to say, spiritually dangerous. Prayer is spiritually dangerous in and of itself. That's because God opposes the proud. He says so in James 4, 6. Prayer can actually ex- expose our heart, reinforce our sin, bring judgment upon us. That's what happened to the Pharisee. This proud prayer exposes his heart reinforces his sin and brings judgment upon him. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about our attitudes about prayer. Many many of us have said prayer cliches all our life. Prayer changes things. 
No, it doesn't. God changes things. There's power in prayer. No, there's not. There isn't. The power is in God alone. God answers prayer. No, he doesn't. God answers the prayer. Because the condition of our heart is what matters to God. The prayer of the tax collector is heard by God because of the state of his heart. The most important thing about prayer is not that you do it in the right way or the right posture or the right right words. It's that you pray to God with the right heart. How How do we get it? How do we get the right heart? Jesus tells us, part three, he gives us that behind the scenes view of how God sees their situation in verse 14. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives this behind-the-scenes view, heaven's view, of what's going on in these two men's lives. One is justified, one is not. Jesus says that the tax collector, the one you would least expect to be justified before God, goes home justified. The Pharisee does not. Justification, or being justified, is just another big theological word, a word that Jesus also uses. It's tightly connected to the first word, righteous. If you, were, if you were asked on the street, this is another man on the street question. If someone came up to you, maybe they have a microphone, they stuck it in your face and they said, you're a Christian, what does justified mean? What would you say? Would you, would you have the answer? To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. Not, not based on our own good deeds, not based on our own good works, but based on the external Work of Christ on the cross. Where his work on the cross to pay for our sins, his work, his righteousness is applied to our account. And God declares us righteous before him. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, now isn't it ironic that two people can be doing the exact same thing and one is utterly wrong and one is utterly right? Two Two people can be sitting next to you in church. Both are praying. One is rejected by God. One is accepted by Him. The truth about both is that both are guilty. There are no innocent people in the world. I heard David Platt uh, recount how he's often asked if, if there was an innocent man in Africa who had never heard the gospel, would he go straight to heaven uh, when he died? And David Platt said, yes, if you found an innocent man in Africa and he died, he would go straight to heaven. But the thing is, that man doesn't exist. No one is innocent. Romans 2.12 said, all have sinned or under God's judgment. All of us are born in sin. There is no one innocent. Those who believe in themselves, those who think they aren't so bad, those 
who trust in their own righteousness before God, those who think they can point to their own good works, are not justified before God, Jesus says. The fact is God hates self-righteous people. Most of us don't like them either, right? Who likes the self-righteous? The only righteous one that impresses God is Jesus. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, so that he could offer his life as a ransom for those of us caught in sin. We've been sold as slaves into sin. We've given ourselves over to sin. So how do we, the guilty ones, get God's justification? What, what sets it in motion? The Christian message is that our sins are placed on Christ when he went to the cross. And that what puts in motion our forgiveness is a humble cry. A humble cry in faith for mercy and forgiveness. We have to humble ourselves before God. Isaiah 66 2 says, The one to whom I will look, he is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So the key to spiritual life? Humility. It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? I'm not going to make any money off of that one. But it's so true. We must humble ourselves before God. Jesus promises that if you lift yourself up, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up. C.J. Mahaney defines true humility this way. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. He also... He also defines pride, the opposite of humility, as when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. I think that defines these two men. One is proud, one is humble. So I need to ask you, does God find humility in your life? What should it look like? Well, I want to propose it looks like the kids. Part four, our last section, the children. Now they were bringing even the infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We receive the kingdom as a child, humbly trusting in our Heavenly Father. You know, one of the reasons that our pastor, Pastor Dave, is such a good pastor, pastor is his humility. Have you all noticed that? It's great to talk about him when he's not here, right? <laughs> he's not here. Much of, it, much of his humility has been thrust on him. Most of you know, or many of you don't, that Dave has a nerve condition in his arms. 
means he can't twist things, he can't lift things, he can't lift his children. I was with Dave at um, a meal last week. A bunch of pastors had all gotten together. There was a big table there. Dave was there. And this was kind of a, a last meeting and really important. And I realized they'd served a steak and that Dave probably wouldn't be able to cut it. He, he doesn't have enough strength to cut his own steak. And so I went over to him and he was just kind of looking at it. <laughs> um, and I said, hey, Dave, can I cut your steak for you? He said, yeah, that, that'd be a big help. So I started sawing away on his steak. And I'm just talking to him. And uh, I look up and I realize about 10 pastors are staring at me and they are not eating. I think some of them might have been thinking, man, those elders at Redeemer, they really treat their pastor right. (laughs) I could tell Dave was a little embarrassed. But the humility he's learned. How little he complains. What joy is in his life. It's amazing. And it's played out. His humility is played out in his life, right? Listen, I I have a checklist of seven things very quickly that you can learn about humility um, that will help you learn. It won't be as severe as Dave's condition, but helpful just the same. Number one, to gain humility... Reflect on the cross. There is no room for pride in reflecting on the cross. Where would, you, where would you be? Where would I be if God had not ransomed me? Where would we be if God had not paid the price for you? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The greatest and most important point of humility is to stop trusting yourself and holy trust on Christ. Give up your pride. It's worthless. It's worthless anyhow. Humble yourself by confessing your sin at the cross and ask God for mercy and forgiveness on His terms. Number two, to gain humility... Make sure that you talk to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Tell yourself gospel truths. This is from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. Tell yourself the truth. Don't listen to your head. Number three, to gain humility, live gratefully. Michael Ramsden says, It's hard to cultivate pride in the soil of thanksgiving. Be a thankful person. A critical spirit kills humility almost by definition because a critical spirit sets you up to pour contempt on others number four to gain humility cast your cares on him again cj mahaney recommends starting each day by casting your cares on the lord often anxiety is at root a desire to be self-sufficient Acknowledge God is sovereign. Acknowledge that God is in control. The solution, humble yourself by putting into practice 1 Peter 5, 6-7, which says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Number five, to gain humility, study the doctrines of grace. If you study the doctrines of grace, election, calling, justification, perseverance, the effect will be humility. Why? Because God has set up salvation so that nothing depends on us. Everything depends on Him. And that is humbling. There is no room to boast in our salvation. Ephesians 2.8 Especially study the doctrine of justification. We're justified before God. That is declared righteous in His sight. Not based on our moral performance but on, based on the moral performance of Christ. That's the very design of, gospel, of the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians 1.29, Paul says, no one can boast in the presence of God. Number six, to gain humility, ask those who know you and love you where your pride is. They know where it is already. You just can't see it. Those that love you know where your pride is. So humble yourself. Ask those that love you about your blind spots in life that are obscured by your pride. And number seven, I highly recommend C.J. Mahaney's book on humility in the bookstore. It's an outstanding book with lots and lots of helpful advice in humility. Humility is close to God's heart. It's the key to spiritual health. So humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to ransom our lives, guilty sinners, to ransom us from death. You did not have to do that, Lord God. You did not have to offer your life as a sacrifice, but you did. And we have been purchased by you, and we are so grateful. So, Lord, we pray for humility. We pray that we might know what it means to be justified before the living God, the living, holy God. We pray in Jesus' name.